at Earth Insiders Podcast is for entertainment, education, and information purposes only, and the topics discussed should not be used solely to diagnose, treat, cure, or prevent any diseases or conditions. For the more that you, the statements expressed on this podcast are solely those of those and should not be interpreted to reflect official policy or position of any entity aside from possibly cash back more hospital and affiliate outreach programs. If indeed there are any, in fact, there are none. Pretty much, we are responsible if you're wrong. You should always do your own homework and let us know the world. Hey, Paul. <laughs> Hi, Matt. Naturalistic as always. Yes, yeah, totally natural. So, Paul, today we're going to be talking about pain, but why don't you tell the audience what, what it is we do here on this show and maybe tell them where we are. Sure. We are broadcasting to you from uh, SGIM or SIGM 2019's annual conference in Washington, D.C. It's been spectacular, and this time, as the great Dr. Wada mentions, we are discussing pain specifically. Um, as a reminder, we are the Internal Medicine Podcast. We use expert interviews to bring you clinical pearls and practice-changing knowledge, um, and we have two spectacular experts for your listening pleasure today. And also, Paul, with us is the great Nora Toronto, who is returning. She's soon to be doctor. Can we call you doctor yet? When are you becoming like a sure. doctor officially? So I get hooded on May 24th. But because you Chicago is on a quarter system, I don't get my degree, and so you can't call me doctor until mid June. Oh, okay. So, so we slightly got, confusing. So it's <laughs> it's May tenth right now. So we got yeah. By the time this airs, you might be doctor. So it's we'll, true. yeah, we'll see. Just so you know, you can actually just buy a long white coat off Amazon. I mean, like it really. I mean, the, <laughs> that's what I've the done. Nice. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> well, Nora, why don't you tell them uh, a little bit of the details of what we talked about on this show today? Yeah, of course. So we're really excited to bring this episode um, to you guys today on updates in pain medicine from SGIM. SIGM, is that how we're saying it? You know, I've been kind of going back and forth. I okay. think we could just say either or. Okay. SGIM? I said SGIM, and then I heard S-Gym. people saying SIGM. We should do a okay. Yeah, I think I think we should uh, maybe maybe we could tweet that out with this episode yeah. and see see poll people. Okay. Okay. Something I was wondering earlier. Um, so the discussion is growing out of the clinical update that Dr. Cushman and Dr. Azari gave yesterday at SGIM, um, and it focuses on questions about pain management um, that get at a few key new findings um, that have been uh, published in the last couple of years. Yeah, and we had this like whole big gigantic script <laughs> and agenda, and mainly what we talked about is a lot of very practical stuff, uh, non-pharmacologic management, how to talk to your patients about their pain, and for patients who are on opioids, we talked about how you might approach a taper, how you might talk to the patients about that, and how how uh, a little bit of granular details about how that might be done, and some stuff on buprenorphine, gabapentin. It's a great episode, so you're going to love it. Our two guests... Uh, our first guest is Dr. Soraya Azari. She is an associate professor of medicine at UCSF, where she also completed residency and a chief residency year. She practices clinical medicine in the primary care, HIV, and addiction clinics, in addition to inpatient medicine at San Francisco General Hospital. That is the city's safety net institution. She supervises quality improvement efforts in the outpatient clinic for patients taking chronic opioid therapy for pain. She is also the associate program director for a primary care track in internal medicine based at Zuckerberg San Francisco General Hospital. Her clinical and teaching interests include chronic pain and substance use disorders. Paul, I'm tired of my voice. Would you read the second bio here? Yeah, happily, because I'm tired of your voice as well. Um, 
JK. <laughs> Thanks, Bob. <laughs> you just look so crestfallen. It was through her work as a primary care physician in Greater Boston in the early 2000s that Dr. Phoebe Cushman developed her interests in chronic pain and addiction. After serving as a primary care physician for eight years, she completed a fellowship in medical education at Mount Auburn Hospital, followed by a general internal medicine fellowship at Boston Medical Center with a focus on opioids, chronic pain, and addiction. She's been an active buprenorphine prescriber since 2008 and is board certified in addiction medicine. She has been an assistant professor at UMass Memorial Health Center since 2017, where she works as a primary care physician and leads efforts at the UMass Medical School and the hospital to improve the safety of opioid prescribing and access to addiction treatment. Her research, quality improvement efforts, and educational endeavors focus on the intersection of chronic pain and addiction. You got any puns, Nora? Not today. Okay. Anybody anybody have a pun? <laughs> no? Okay, let's just go to the show. Phoebe, we always start by asking our guests, can you give us a one-liner to describe yourself and include something about yourself that you do outside the world of medicine? Um, okay, so I am a general internist and addiction physician uh, who has... Uh, seven-year-old twins and who are really into musicals okay (laughs) what's the latest yeah what's the latest thing that they're a fan of a fan of you you, yeah i could go like hamilton yeah well they are into hamilton despite the fact that they're perhaps a little bit underage um (laughs) yes they are definitely into hamilton um but they they're also they're also they're in musicals i mean very community they were both they have a boy and a girl they were both nuns in the sound of music this past summer so that's their claim to fame so reading between the lines you're a stage mom is that what you're saying (laughs) you know maybe in uh, another life i'm a stage mom (laughs) okay Soraya, how about you? I'm a 30-something-year-old primary care doctor, HIV and addiction doctor in San Francisco, and I spend my time taking care of two children that are not twins, but five and two years old, cooking for said children and myself, and then uh, spending time with my partner. Sounds wonderful. Um Paul, did you have any questions for our guests? No, I, I mean, I guess my usual. This is, I feel like this is always so anxiety provoking for people. So I like how this was written to open things up. So movie, TV show, book, just any piece of pop culture that you've um, recently enjoyed that you would recommend would be fine. Let's do Phoebe first. Um, well, I think it's probably a really common response for women in my demographic, but I really enjoyed Becoming by Michelle Obama recently. Um, sort of unexpectedly so. Um, I mean, I knew it was going to be good because everybody was raving about sure. it, but it was great. What about what about for Paul and I to read? Do you think do you think we'd get anything out of it? I I, <laughs> I noticed that I'm mostly reading male authors, but I am going to recommend a book written by a woman today. But I just, what do you think? Uh, absolutely, absolutely. In fact, my dad is a retired English professor, and I. I actually got really annoyed at him when he had a sort of a similar response was mm-hmm. like when I said, oh, you got to read Becoming because he usually he usually reads whatever I recommend to him. And his first response was, well, you say everybody loves it. Have any of them been men? And I <laughs> I mean, what these lady authors now. Now, what's next? OK, and what is what is the general thrust? What is her thesis statement? Oh, for for Michelle Obama? Yeah. Um, well, I wouldn't say she has a thesis statement. It's, I mean, the thing that's interesting, I mean, the book starts in her childhood. And I would say the most interesting part of the book is, is 
her growing up story on, you know, the south side of Chicago, pretty impoverished, but with the like these really strong, well, especially her mom, I would say, like pretty amazing um forward-thinking mom who herself really didn't have much um, and how her mother's attitude, well, her father's too, but especially her mother's attitude and their their sort of focus on education and their focus on their, their ways of dealing with the racism and everything that was so inevitable in their lives was, it, I don't know, it was, it was inspiring her, especially her early history. I'm going to recommend a book by a male author. Uh, the Yay. book is named. <laughs> Finally, something I can relate to. <laughs> the book is called uh, "There, There" by Tommy Orange, and it's a book uh, written by a man who is Native American, and it's about um, the native the Native experience in Oakland, primarily, but the Bay Area, and it's a s- book that has stories from lots of different perspectives and all the characters lives sort of come together in the end of the book. And uh, I believe it was like he he had written before, but it was sort of his kind of like a breakthrough novel. And it's just, you can't put it down. It's really, it's really phenomenal. Um, I guess the next question to get to know you guys is what's the best advice that you've ever received as a learner or as a teacher or just kind of overall in your career? And we'll start with you, Soraya. I always tell this story because when I was a pre-med, I did a year of research for the National Institute of Drug Abuse, and I was in a lab studying addiction with rat models, and I was... um, I was talking to my PI and uh, he was wondering why I was there and why I was interested in research. And I cobbled together some story about like how I wanted to learn about addiction. And, you know, he just sort of looked at me and he was like, you're not going to learn anything about addiction in this lab. He's like, if you want to understand addiction, read this book. And he gave me The Wire by Dave Simon. Uh, But this was, of course, like, you know, 15 years ago. So it was before the series came out. But it was a lesson to me that like, you know, our education is not pathophysiology and anatomy and um, dosages, and it's the larger context in which we live and the stories of people's lives, especially who have lived experience. And I feel like that just changed my whole perspective on how I thought about what was a disease and what wasn't and uh, and made me a better uh, clinician. That's amazing. I feel like that's so relevant, especially to the theme of this year's SGM conference where we're recording from. Um, Yeah. What about you, Phoebe? Mine's a little less inspirational. Um, Well, when I was a uh, second year MET student, I thought I wanted to be an OBGYN. Um, Very glad that I'm not. No offense to those who are, but um, I, I had this really great preceptor in the community in rural North Carolina. And, um, he was giving me feedback in this very appropriate way. And he said, he said, you know, Phoebe, you're really, really good with patients. You've got that down. Like you take a good history, you develop rapport quickly, but you know what? You never seem to really like doing procedures. You should just, my advice to you is you should pretend to like procedures if you want to get forward (laughs) in medical school and the rest of your life. And I thought, you know, if I can make that into a little bit of an analogy, it was the thing is that 
after, or not an analogy, but a, an allegory. The thing is that after a while, I, when I kept pretending that I liked doing procedures, I actually ended up enjoying procedures. And I think that is probably a good attitude to take in, in medicine and in, in life. That's like the research where if you like bite down on a pen- pencil, even if you're, if you're really angry, like your body thinks you're smiling and it yeah. like makes you happy or something. I don't know. Paul, what do you think? I, <laughs> I am not familiar with that research. No, I, I think you need a little bit of Stockholm syndrome to survive medical school and medical training in general. And a lot of the times you can, exactly as you say, you sort of trick yourself and actually enjoying it, which is, I think, an okay thing to do. Be, be, so before we get onto the topic, I did want to, I haven't given a pick of the week in a while, but I read a book recently that I liked. It's called We Need to Talk, and it's by Celeste Headley. She was, she still is an interviewer that works for NPR and has just done thousands of interviews. And she basically wrote a book about having conversations with people and uh, just it's filled with practical advice and a lot of like case studies from her life where she made big time mistakes and uh, how to it had, does a lot with like how to talk to people that you disagree with, and uh, I think it's just I think it will make you reading it will make you just like a better friend, a better partner, a better doctor. So I think it's very useful. Um, I'll give if if either of you have any quick recommendations. I have one. Um, I just finished Where Do You Go, Bernadette? Another book oh, um, yeah. by Maria Semple. Another female author for you guys. Okay. Um, That's a fun one. It's really fun. I, I had been in a kind of long period of re- trying to read a bunch of different things and just not getting immersed in them. And this was the first book in a couple of months that I've really enjoyed. And it's been, it's quick, um, but it's kind of very interesting, the style in which it's written. Um, and it's really, really enjoyable. So highly recommend that. That sounds great. I'm I'm gonna go fluff. I'm, I'm gonna recommend um, Killing Eve, which I don't think I've done before. It's a BBC American series um, starring Sandra Oh, uh, who plays a British intelligence officer who's tracking down uh, just a delightful psychopath, someone who plays a sociopath who has absolute charisma but is completely amoral. Actually, not even amoral, just a, a horrible human being. And they slowly become obsessed with each other. And it also, just as a side note, has the single best soundtrack I think of any television show I've ever heard in my entire life. So it is. It's really funny. It's really suspenseful. The acting's fantastic, and I think it's underappreciated. I don't hear enough people talking about it, and everyone should be obsessed with it. So I would recommend Killing Eve if you don't mind shelling out to watch the first season. Very solid recommendation. I just started it a month or so ago. All right. I think we should get into the topic here because we have a lot of ground to cover. So, Nora, do you want to start us off with a case? Sure. So we'll start with a patient in clinic, as we often do. This is a 75-year-old lady who comes into clinic um, because of kind of ongoing pain. He has a history of hypertension, diabetes, complicated by some peripheral neuropathy and arthritis. Um, She underwent shoulder surgery about three months ago and has some residual pain after it um, that hasn't really gone away as she thought it would, is currently most bothered by this persistent shoulder pain, which she describes as largely aching and tight. Um, And it has improved since the surgery, but has just not gone away completely. She also has pain and tingling in her feet that's kind of chronic in nature, in addition to some chronic lower back pain. So lots going on. Um, and I guess the first question for you guys would be, how do you break down the causes of pain when you have a patient come in to you like this? 
And Soraya, let's start with you. Great. Well, we're taught about the three big buckets of pain. You know, one is nociceptive pain. So that's pain due to tissue injury. And then we talk about neuropathic pain, which is pain that's due to injury of the nervous system. And then the third bucket is sort of central sensitization. So that's pain in the absence of injury. And we have created that schema to help us give shape to something that can be really amorphous and confusing and emotionally really difficult. It's hard to see our patients struggling in pain. And we think that the categorization of pain can help inform our management and pick the meds that will work the best. And I will say that that's not a perfect practice. And um, that, that that sort of approach has been missing from the literature. And most of the studies that we have enroll patients with chronic pain based on diagnosis. And uh, so most studies are really accounted for by low back pain. That's also the most common cause of chronic pain in the United States and affects, um, well, 50 million Americans have uh, moderate to severe pain uh, in the United States. Uh, the majority of that, at least 40% is low back pain. So it's it's definitely the biggie. And uh, a lot of the pain trials that we described in our update really um, did enroll people on the basis of their primary diagnosis, as opposed to we're going to randomize just patients with neuropathic pain to one intervention versus another. Is this is this pretty well agreed upon now? Phoebe, is this how you also cate- categorize the pain? Is there any other type of pain that are that we should think of? I mean, I think I do, yeah, I think of it very similarly. Mm-hmm. I I would say it's an it's a little bit of a an unusual situation that it because typically that person is already on twenty five meds for her yeah. or like fifteen meds for her pain when you come right. in. And really you're trying to sort out what the heck is helping, what's actually causing unintentional side effects. Um, and so it's it's really rare that you'd start with a sort of a, a clean slate. Sure. Um, especially in somebody who's older and post op and mm-hmm. that sort of thing. But but yes, I agree with the buckets that Soraya mentioned. So in the case that you gave, Nora, you know, it sounds like she has neuropathic pain yeah. in her feet and potential nociceptive pain in her shoulder from her surgery. An example, just to close the learning loop of central sensitization or conditions like complex regional pain syndrome or fibromyalgia are sort of the most common examples of that. They separate. We're talking, I guess we should just say for the audience, too, we're talking about non-cancer pain. That's, that's pretty much all we're going to be talking about today. So patients with cancer, that, that'll be a whole different talk. Correct. Okay. Could both of you mind talking about, do you use pain scales as their way to quantify the pain in addition to finding sort of the, the actual bucket that the pain might fall into? Well, so the, the typical pain scale is fraught, right? Um, it is so subjective. And um, I think that there's not a physician out there who would say that she embraces it. Um and and we're sort of like with the um, guidelines that were put out by, I think, the World Health Organization in the uh, 1990s and early 2000s, where pain is the fifth vital sign and patients always have to be asked that, it becomes almost sort of meaningless. Um, however, um, 
I tend to use, uh, but it is, but the goal is to do some, is to use some sort of numerical rating to, to do the pain. I tend to, um, I try to talk to patients using the PEG scale, um, which is something that Krebs's team from Minnesota, I think, um, validated several years ago. It stands for pain enjoyment and general activities. And so it's really just a modification of the pain scale um, where you're asking in the last week, how much pain have you had, zero to 10? And then how much have, has your pain interfered with your enjoyment of life? How much has it interfered with your general activities? Uh, it's much more, it's useful in primary care, which both of us practice in that you see these patients over time. Um, it would probably be a little less um, helpful in like an ER setting where it's acute pain and you don't get to see how those numbers might modulate over time in reaction to the therapies that you prescribe. I should also point out that in my clinic, you know, it's all it's all operations, and my medical assistant doesn't get collect PEG scores on my patients before I see them, and so it would that would require sort of the my initiating the PEG score with them, and sometimes I can do that, and sometimes I can't. Ideally, you would track it, but in in practice, I don't have time to do that. We also know that forty percent of the patients we see during a typical week in primary care are, are coming in with pain complaints. It's it's all of what we do, so we can't get PEG scores on all those people. So um, I think the other you know are open ended questions, you know, tell me about how your pain influences your, your life function, yeah. uh, and really sort of more qualitative sort of questions. And then just a plug to ask people how they're controlling their pain. It's a way to really empower them because there's a lot that they're doing in self-management um, that we don't affirm, right? We should say that is so great, right? You took a hot shower, you rubbed your back, like you went to church with your family, like all of that stuff is pain management, right? And then you managed to make it in to see me today, like that's great, you know? And that's a way to boost your patient up when they're feeling alone, like really freaked out and, um, uh, and helpless. So, um, so I think that resilience coaching is really important. Uh, and those are, those are kind of like adapted, you know, cognitive techniques that, um, uh, that are really helpful for people suffering with pain. So do you ever ask patients to keep track of their pain levels at home kind of as a replacement for doing the PEG ass assessment in clinic? I don't really. I think I, I. I'm sure somebody has studied that. Um, I would worry, just at least off the top of my head, I would worry that that would also actually make them almost like perseverate more about their pain. Um, but I do. But I do ask more sort of general qualitative questions, like you know, what makes your pain better? When what do you notice like in your life? What are you doing when it's better? What are you doing when it's worse? Um, and then also, I just want to echo, I think that Sarai's suggestions are really great, because a lot of the patients, especially those who suffer with chronic pain, have a sense of lack of entitlement and lack of empowerment and feel like very much at the mercy of this pain thing. And they want their doctors to fix them and anything that we can do to help sort of reorient them towards, um, you know, being in charge of their pain and helping their own pain will, I think, again, just help a lot in the long run. I, I want to ask as a follow-up question, I, I wasn't sure exactly where to put this in this interview, but for non-pharmacologic, let's, so this woman, before we get to her medications, like what sort of things would you tell, might you tell a patient that comes in with a pain complaints like this that they can do before you even start the meds, like in addition, the non-pharmacologic things, what do you think matters or what 
for, for the chronic component of pain? Well, I think that, tell me again, how old, how old is she? 75. She's older. Okay. I mean, uh, one thing that I think across the board is helpful is to be as active as is physically possible. Um, and sometimes it's a little tricky if she has neuropathic pain in her feet. Um, it would not, it, it would be pr- probably pretty common for somebody like that to respond, well, it hurts to walk. What do you want me to do, doctor? Mm-hmm. And then you have the typical situation where you're like, well, do you swim? Well, I know how to swim, but like, I don't have the money to join the pool. Sure. Um, so being as active as possible and and sometimes helping the patient um, sort of brainstorm and proliferate and like ideas that he he or she possibly could do um, because sometimes there's kind of this like fixed mindset. Well, like I can't exercise because sure. of X and you need to help them kind of identify actual possibilities in their daily life. Mm-hmm. That would be my first one. Yeah. I think that the, we could spend this entire show talking about all the things that we could do that are non-pharmacologic. You know, I think one question is, um, what pillow is she using to sleep on? Um, How much sleep is she actually getting at night? Is she having stress with her partner? Is she carrying a load with one arm versus the other? Probably not because she's post-surgical. What was her post-surgical experience like? Were there stressors or problems that came up in that? Has she been engaging in physical therapy? Walk me through your exercise routine. Um, Have you been doing sort of like paced activity. Paced activity is an evidence-based intervention. It means like not trying to, you know, go up five flights of stairs in uh, in one day as the start of your exercise routine. Um, just as a simple example, it's like, how about that first day you do four steps instead of all five flights? And then the next day, maybe you can do seven steps. And if you actually find that you're getting a little bit tired, take a rest, you know, pace your activity and then do the rest of those seven steps and then call it a day, right? And and so pacing, teaching a person how to pace their activity throughout the day um, is also a really helpful thing. Uh, obviously, ice and heat are um, absolutely zero risk interventions that are really helpful to a person. And then um, I think there's just other sort of you know, we haven't gotten her diagnosis, but I, I really remind the audience that for any person, the diagnosis is not chronic pain syndrome. It's chronic pain syndrome due to adhesive capsulitis, chronic pain due to osteoarthritis. I mean, we should, we should, we're internists. We take a history, we do a physical, and we make a diagnosis, and that helps sort of direct our treatments. Maybe this is a patient that just needs a steroid injection. So, so lots of different options, and, and I think we're not, um, we're really not trapped in the corner of, of just pharmacologic agents. They are definitely part of our, our tools, though. You guys mentioning sort of self-management and, and kind of coping skills and that kind of stuff. Is there a role for cognitive behavioral therapy? Have you made any successful referrals for that? Or is that is that evidence-based even? I mean, CBT for chronic ba- pain is evidence-based. Um, I understand from speaking to a psychologist that actually the the coding of it is tricky. Like there's some sort of, you have to code it in a way that they're, they also, the, the good thing, I guess the good news on that front is, as she was saying, is they, they, most ha- mostly have a mood disorder anyway, and you could just code that. Uh, but there's certainly lots of evidence-based interventions. I know the VA has done a lot um, with um, CBT for chronic pain. Um, I can speak to my own experience. We're in a I'm in a, a busy primary care practice with 22,000 patients. We have we're in between psychologists in that we had one, and we're going to get another one at some point. So it wouldn't really be, and we're very under-resourced when it comes to referring, even referring out for psychotherapy. Um, so 
it's a it's an it's a, a major access problem. Um, we were just talking earlier today in a meeting with our sort of pain um, internal medicine colleagues about um, internists needing to use to learn some of the skills. Um, we don't have the time to sit and actually do a, a full CBT session, you know, once a week for ten weeks. Right. Nor nor do we have the ten years of training that PhDs um, have. But using some of those. Um, applying some of those skills, um, I think, is 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 worthwhile. And wasn't there a talk in your talk? Wasn't there like a remote CBT mm-hmm. article showing that that was? I think it was non inferior to in person. Mm-hmm. Exactly. This was a study that was done from the VA system comparing um, interactive voice response uh, CBT to traditional CBT with in-person sessions. And for the trial, you know, sort of half of the participants were given a pedometer and they were um, they would sort of record their level of daily activity and they would send those recordings to a centrally located psychologist and they would uh, give them um, cognitive behavioral feedback on on their level of activity as recorded by the pedometer. Uh, because again, pain management is about function and like how much are you moving around? Uh, and so um, the, and that was compared to traditional sessions of CBT where you would have to come in and learn all the cognitive and behavioral techniques. And uh, the, the, as you said, the interactive voice response uh, intervention was non-inferior. You know, I think um, I, it's, it's a great study. It gives me hope. But right now, I can't give out pedometers to my patients in clinic. And I don't have a person that's going to send a voice recording about CBT advice to my patients. And so this is just the big challenge with all of these uh, sort of non-pharmacologic interventions is uh, is payment. And um, uh, But I, I think these studies take us closer to the place of saying to payers that this is an evidence-based intervention to keep people functional, and you have to cover this benefit. And I was just going to add that that um, inter- interactive voice response system study was not really about telemedicine. It was sort of a different variety of using technology, but um, and we didn't include any telemedicine studies, but I would say that that is definitely, it, it seems like there's, there is um, some a little bit of momentum to get, yeah. especially in the behavioral health world where they don't have to, you know, listen to the heart sounds or whatever. I know I, um, that there's there seems to be more payment reform around getting psychotherapy um, through telemedicine covered for patients. So I'm hopeful that that will offer um, increased access. What about the apps that are available um, that for kind of various um, behavioral or meditation purposes? Do you ever recommend those? Uh, there are apps. I uh, There's uh, some that you have to pay for. So I never yeah. recommend those to my patients because I work in a safety net setting. Uh, there is one uh, that is called um, Affirmations that I like that is free. And it gives you, you touch it once a day and it gives you an affirmation that says something like, you know, you can do anything you put your mind to or like, you know, don't let negativity be sort of the boss of your life. It's just, I mean, it's like positive statements that are very affirming. And uh, so I recommend that to some patients. There's also another free app called Calm uh, that advises a person about how to do relaxation. 
And then uh, the other one, wait, is Calm free? We should check that. No, Calm is free for, I think you can sign up to get okay. more variety. But if you don't mind listening to the first, the same 10 meditations over and over and you like right. the guy's voice, your headspace is the same way. Inside yeah. Timer is the one that's like sort that's of a free. compilation of everything sort of varied quality across the whole, you know, web. Yeah, I've used that one too. Yeah. I think I think they're all, I, I would tell I would tell people to, play around with them some are free they all have some free content Uh, i think we should move on to talking about medications so let's say let's say that our our patient here is like i've been taking acetaminophen um it's not working i want i want the good stuff give me the opioids let's do it uh what how do you how do you (laughs) 75 year old is saying yeah (laughs) how do you respond she's been taking well she's been you know her cousin had some leftover pills so she's been taking her cousin's percocets uh and that seems to be working for her so she wants she wants that now so does does that work for chronic chronic msk pain well um as an addiction medicine physician i'd have to say that I would have a little pause when, if somebody, you know, tried to make a case <laughs> to for me to prescribe opiates for her based on the fact that it's worked because she's taken her cousins. Um, but um, so again, we're not very often in this exact position of um, considering whether or not to initiate opioids for chronic pain. Um, the the some of the literature that we reviewed um, in our in our update, including the Krebs trial, which was looking at groups of people with chronic musculoskeletal pain and doing a head-to-head trial of a sort of a tiered group of therapies that are either either includes opioids or does not, um, did not find a difference in law in in pain and overall well-being af- um, and physical functioning after the trial. So I think that that gives a lot of people pause about potentially even starting opioids. Having said that, um, I I sometimes, I can't remember exactly maybe the last time I have because it's been a long time, but in in cases um, that I might call sort of subacute pain, like I had a, a patient with uh, like a severe c- cervical radiculopathy, but I I thought it probably was going to heal on its own. Sure. And he just, like there were NSAIDs were contraindicated. Um, and that kind of setting every once in a while, I, I would try opioids, but um, try being, trial being really the key word. So um, in, in the patient presented in this case, I probably would not recommend a trial of opioids to a 75-year-old Um um, especially if she were naive from other medications categories that we haven't talked about yet. Um, but I, I, I just, just as a caveat, if, if I were to, pres- to recommend opioids, I would do it in a very sort of, I, I would make it very clear that it, I was, we were trying it, seeing if it's going to help, seeing how she tolerates it, and that we would make the sort of decision about the benefits versus harms along the way and it re- revisit it quickly. But again, in that particular patient, I, I certainly wouldn't, opioids would not be the first thing I would prescribe. Okay. So what might, Soraya, what might a pain regimen, what might you suggest as a pain regimen? And then we'll probably change the case and make it like she's already on a bunch of opioids yeah, and okay. what you do. That's just more realistic. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. I think for her, uh, probably the first thing I would 
talk about is which is bothering her more, her shoulder or her feet. And if it's um, her shoulder, you know, I would probably be thinking, depending on the surgical history, about whether I could do an injection in the office uh, same day. Because uh, certainly for what we typically see in primary care, like subacromial bursitis and uh, rotator cuff tendonitis and it, conditions like that, you can uh, literally heal your patient and uh, they love you uh, when they walk out of the room. So the, that's just a great office-based procedure. And uh, if it's if it's actually her feet pain that is that is bothering her, you know, that would probably, you know, start a conversation about, you know, again, these agents, not well studied, but what we think are better for neuropathic pain. And uh, that includes uh, large categories like tricyclic um, antidepressants, uh, and um, uh, medications in the AED or anti epileptic drug class. And, uh, and so we sort of talk about what those meds do and how they make you feel and how they would feel different from an opioid. And if she really keeps coming back to the opioid and from my friend, and this and that, you know, I'll, I'll sort of say, like, what do you know about the risks of opioids, right? Sort of doing the MI strategy of, like, ask the patient. And then when she says, like, there's no risk or, like, other people overdose from them, you know, sort of saying, like, well, can I share with you some of the risks of long-term use, you know? So, right, there's a 20% risk of developing an addiction. Like, that's that's real. People die of addiction. I like I I wouldn't want to take that medicine. Um, uh, there's an increased risk of mortality, certainly with long-acting opioids, which we learned from the Tennessee Medicaid study. Um, there's an especially um, in elderly uh, patients, we think an increased risk of pneumonia. Uh, the other issue, of course, with long-term use is hypogonadism and then the risk of osteoporosis. Uh, that would I would also bring to her attention, and then. Um, uh, sort of other specters of things like opioid-induced hyperalgesia. And so, you know, it's like we have to just be honest with our patients and sort of say, like, what I know about you and what I know about your medical history, like, I don't think this is a safe medicine. Here's all the reasons why. What patients do not like is when doctors just just don't even think about the person in front of them and cite guidelines and don't actually engage with the person and engage in their suffering um, and saying like, well, my, my clinic prevents me from giving opioids. Like that's not a way to treat a person. So, or my license is on the line. Yeah. Yeah. Oh. Yeah. This, yeah. So how would you go about risk stratifying patients who come to you um, in terms of doing the kind of short course or the trial of opioids? If you were to just generally or this patient in particular? I guess uh, this patient in particular, but then more broadly. Yeah. I mean, again, I would, my concerns for this particular patient, Sarai's already cited some of them. She's 75. She has a risk for bone thinning, um, falls, um, cognitive changes. Um, uh, the other kinds of things that I, um, again, that I would screen for, um, regardless of age, again, it's, it it can't be done in a, in a super explicit way, or it sounds very like punitive to say to you know you can't say oh well before I start opioids um, do you do you misuse any other drugs um, but it is um, I think important to take a full kind of I do sort of a full pain history and a full addiction history but I kind of weave it in a more natural way through this sort of patient encounter where I'm really just kind of collecting their social history. Um, so I think, I think that's really important. Um, there are a lot of, there are some risk tools. There's one called the opioid risk tool that allows you to sort of, sort of put people in different categories of risk of misusing opioids. Um, it's not, 
it's not perfect. It's, and again, I don't think anybody would endorse using these risk tools in a kind of all or nothing way. Well, you smoke cigarettes and your father had a problem with alcohol, therefore you're too high risk for taking this opioid when you fell on your shoulder. I mean, that just doesn't make sense. But, but thinking about, um, risks associated with aging and then also associated with um, misuse are are important. And the only thing I would add to that is that the opioid risk tool includes a sensitive question about sexual, sexual abuse. And so you really can't sc- screen about something unless you're prepared to deal with the response to the screener. And so that's a really key part of the ORT. Uh, the other ones that are out there are the COM, C-O-M-M. The dire is one that the provider fills out. Um, So there are self-administered screeners for opioid misuse with prescription opioids, and then there are ones that the provider fills out. And uh, in our clinic, we, um, we, I have taught with and used the dire because it's based on sort of uh, provider uh, uh, sort of not just stalt, but also the objective data you've sort of collected about the individual. And, uh, but those are, again, those are not uh, deterministic and uh, that this person it gets opioids and this person doesn't. I do think it's good to, you know, to consider sort of like objective things, because if we don't, then we allow our implicit biases to influence like who gets opioids and who doesn't. Uh, the other, the final thing I'll say is like, if you can't, if you're like, I, I don't have time to do the ORT, I don't have time for the dire, uh, you know, just asking any history of a substance use disorder or a mental health disorder puts you at risk for harm from opioids. And that's both unintentional overdose and developing a use disorder. And I ask every patient about those two things. So if I get a yes to one of those things, you know, that that makes me think that they're unlikely to do well. Depression's also, uh, especially people with negative affect, they are less likely to respond to opioids. And so I talk with people about that. Long-term opioids also is a risk for incident depression as well. So, so you know, it's like when you air all these issues with patients, you know, sometimes they're just like, yeah, this doesn't sound like a good idea. Yeah, and I was actually, if we go back to the 75-year-old, the fir- we, you didn't really say, oh, she has a history of depression or anything like that. But I would be, sh- I would always be sh- sure not to say, oh, you know, your foot pain and your, your shoulder pain is all in your, your, sh- um, your head. But, but that so many, there's such a huge overlap between chronic pain and depression and or anxiety that it's, it's, and and certainly there's a lot of people who might reach for her sister's opioids or whatever. And yes, it makes the foot pain better, but it also just makes me feel better. And um, there are other um, safer and um, more specific means of addressing depression than than having than people taking you know opioids to help their depression. So. Um, now we're going to change the case a little bit. Um, let's say this patient isn't opioid naive. She's actually on 300 morphine milligram equivalents. Um, and she, it hasn't been working super well for her. Um, so we're now thinking about kind of other alternatives, um, to the opioids, um, as well as whether to keep her on the opioids. Great. So if a person is not responding with functional improvement to high-dose opioids, then you have a couple of options. You know, one is to um, first just check your diagnosis, make sure it's right. Uh, The other is to, you know, determine whether the person um, might be having sort of opioid-induced hyperalgesia, which is a diagnosis of exclusion, kind of hard to sort out. Um, And 
the other thing is to make sure that, you know, whether or not the person might have developed an opioid use disorder. You're not telling me anything in the stem about this patient's case that suggests that they might have an opioid use disorder from their prescription opioids. But it is worth mentioning that your MME, your total milligrams per day, does confer as it gets higher, it confers an increased risk of having an opioid use disorder. Uh, Those are certainly patients also that have pretty prominent physical dependence on their opioids. And it's really hard sometimes to sort out clinically if the pain that they're managing, that the opioids is quote-unquote helping, is sort of pain from wear off of opioids, especially as you get onto high dose. And I know you guys have talked about this in in other sessions, in other podcasts. And, I, um, and I'll sort of say to a person, you know, do you just notice that like, all day, you have to think about when you're going to have your next pill, and and you just need that next pill to just like feel okay, and then you just have to start thinking about the next pill. And they're like, yes, you know, and and then I start getting this narrative where like opioids is kind of consuming a lot of their life, right? Like it's everything that they have to know where their pills are, if they have enough of them, if they can go on, and sort of that. Um, sometimes that can be an indication to me that they have an opioid use disorder, you know, part of how we make that diagnosis is, um, uh, is uh, things like a loss of control. So, so are you in control of the opioids? Or are they in control of you? Um, uh, and then uh, is a person continuing to use despite consequences? And so sometimes I have patients that will run out early in the month and experience physical withdrawal, very unpleasant. And yet then they start opioids again. So that's kind of like use despite harm. Like, why would you get so physically ill and then like start taking the substance again? So, so just that, um, the, the, you know, there's, there's obviously uh, a, le- a big list of DSM criteria. It's a clinical diagnosis. And so, uh, but I, when I do have a patient on high dose, I, I have in the back of my mind, like, is this a person where just like the opioids have really taken over their life? And if so, then I start conversations with them about how they might be better suited for something like buprenorphine naloxone. And I have a lot of patients that have had to transition, especially people that were on high dose. If this person doesn't have an opioid use disorder, I would probably, you know, be it's really rare that we increase the dose, especially if you're on 300 milligrams. We know that increasing doses do not decrease your pain score. They definitely don't give you better function, but they increase your risk of harm. And so, you know, you're sort of going to say to the patient, we can try and decrease your dose and your pain might actually get better. That's usually how we make the diagnosis of opioid-induced hyperalgesia is that you, they just get better when you decrease their dose, especially at the right pace. Um, but, but also just saying to a person, like, you're not doing well. Right. And and uh, you might get better if we slowly decrease your dose. Let's see what happens. Before you decrease anybody's dose, you have to advise them of the possibility of an opioid use disorder. And a lot of the behavioral symptoms, because again, it's a behavioral disorder addiction, a lot of those behavioral abnormalities come out during tapers. So um, we have the ability as physicians to taper people off of substances that people can do that. We have to pick the right pace and um, the right approach, and it has to be patient-centered and collaborative. But if you are doing everything right, it's a good taper schedule, it's not too fast, and you're finding that the person like is still running out early every month, and um, they're missing all their appointments because they're just so disorganized by the five fewer pills they gave them per month. And you're like, huh, like it kind of seems like, you know, like, again, those behavioral abnormalities, like, 
are coming out that maybe actually we had this accidental thing come up where you actually got an opioid use disorder with your pain. And so like, can I talk to you about a medication that might help you uh, uh, just function better? And um, all of my patients that have transitioned to, to buprenaloxone have, um, have described functional improvement and, and pain alleviation. And that's been shown in, in small uh, case studies as well uh, um, and series and observational data uh, showing improved pain scores. I was just going to add to that that, I mean, a different, not a different approach, but a slightly, uh, some of the things that Soraya touched on, I would say, are somewhat controversial. I, I agree with with her approach. Um, the the Something that's very much kind of in the media right now is forced tapers and yes. misapplication of the CDC guidelines. And I think, I think part of the problem is that uh, there, there really are many, many different ways to taper patients. And, and I've, I certainly have seen patients come to me who had a prior PCP who was, you know, taking them down like 30 milligrams of methadone a week or something like absolutely ridiculous where, of course, they're having completely unpredictable and out of control withdrawal symptoms because the methadone is, you know, the, the, uh, the, um, pharmacokinetics are so unusual. Um, and then, and I think there are, I think that it's hard to really lump tapers into one big category, like the kind of sort of 10% per month taper that Soraya is alluding to is much more humane. Um, the other thing I was just going to add that... Um, I usually go slower than that, for the record, okay. for voluntary tapers. Um, how many milligrams yeah. per month? Can you... Yeah, I, th I think that for a voluntary taper, because a lot of times when you tell patients, like, here's the risks we know about high dose, they're like, oh, yeah, let's let's try and decrease my dose. That is very common. And in surveys of patients, 49% of patients actually want to taper their dose of opioids. So when you tell them, like, these are the risks we know now about these meds, they're like, oh, yeah, I want to decrease. So I will um, always provide choice to my patient. Do you want to go down on this versus this? And then it's usually on the order of, like, 2 to 10% of the total MME, right? So if a person is on 100 milligrams of morphine a day, that would be, like, two to 10 milligrams less each month yeah. for a voluntary taper. Mm -hmm. um, and I think that the you have to have flexibility in tapers, um, which is we're going to decrease this month and we're going to check in and see how it went. Okay, that was a little bit too fast. Let's slow down, right? And then let's go on from there. And um, But you're going to monitor a patient during a taper, right? So you're still going to get urine drug screens to, to sort of see like, could you make the medicine last till the end of the month? Like you couldn't make the medicine last till the end of the month. Well, I'm, I gave you enough for the month. So like, how come you couldn't make it last for the whole month? You know, like walk me through sort of what's going on. Maybe this, maybe that month was too fast. Let's slow down again, but we're going to get another urine drug screen so we can actually see if you can actually make your pills last the whole month. And, and so this is like an iterative, yeah. long, long, complicated long, long. process. Yeah. And it's, it's just part of like the hard, important work that we do as internists. For the patients that you successfully transitioned to, to buprenorphine naloxone, um, is the do you maintain that medication then do you maintain the bup um just because it's a chronic pain condition and you're treating that or is the goal to actually eventually transition off of that as well like do you ever sort of slow taper 
It's a great question, but most are maintained on buprenorphine naloxone. And standard of care for a prescription opioid use disorder or any type of opioid use disorder is maintenance yeah. treatment. So for that reason, I don't uh, talk to them about decreasing their bupenal dose um, unless that's something that they're uh, interested in doing as one of their goals. If they don't have opioid use disorder and you were going to put them on bup, yeah. Maybe- so that's well, that's the that's the interesting point that I was I was going to try to address is that I think there. So I think that most people would agree that there's a gray zone, right, between the between people taking opioids for chronic pain completely appropriately and people with an opioid use disorder. Um, I personally do. Um, think of a lot of my patients with opioid use disorder with excuse me who take opioids for chronic pain I I, I think you really can ad- like if if for example their husband has to dole out their medicine or they take too much they're like these little signs that perhaps are not as striking as you know buying heroin on the street um, so I'm a little bit more in that camp but I think that some people would say oh no no it's not an opioid use disorder it's a complex opioid dependence is that the word that some people use um um in any case, I think w- the buprenorphine in this country is not FDA approved for pain in the absence of opioid use disorder. However, however, um, my understanding is that the, the, the number of people who have prescribed buprenorphine in that setting and not had it covered or gotten into some sort of trouble is zero. So, um, so there are a lot of people who, who there are a lot of physicians who would, you know, say, well, maybe this, this, just this isn't working. Not necessarily say, oh, there's clear red flags or there's signs of an opioid use disorder, but this isn't safe. This isn't really working, and really have that be the focus of the discussion. Um, and and even without an opioid use disorder, transition a person to buprenorphine just because it's safer. And then, of course, in Europe, um, in some parts of Europe, they, it is being used as first line treatment for chronic pain in the you know completely in the absence of an opioid use disorder just because of the lower risk of misuse and overdose. And so so let's talk about formulations. So buprenorphine yeah. as a transdermal right. patch which right. is right. Sorry. called so butrans that is, one is is formulated for pain. Correct. Right. And and FDA approved for pain. Um that's in micrograms, right? So uh so a 10 microgram patch yeah. you, you know 20 micrograms and the tablets are you know twos, eights, twelves. So um, very different. And I think, you know, if you're talking about a person who is opioid experience and is on 400 milligrams of morphine daily, um, that person's not going to be maintained on a buprenorphine transdermal patch like butrans at 10 or 20 micrograms per hour. So the, um, so that's a person that would need, that would is a person that would probably be on something like 16 to 24 milligrams of buprenorphine daily. And so, you know, that that's, those are sort of the important things to differentiate. And, uh, um, but I think that, you know, the safety profile is so alluring of buprenorphine. And, uh, and, and I definitely hear from patients that they don't experience the wear off effect that happens with full agonists. Um, so that's sort of the, you know, you take the oxycodone, and then, it, of course, um, three hours later, you know, sort of the pain level starts to rise, they don't experience that. Uh, and that has to do with the long half life of buprenorphine. But but to answer your question about the dosing, so buprenorphine does have a, a long half-life. Um, at, at the analgesic properties are um, thought to be better when taken 
three or four times a day. Mm-hmm. So so the person isn't actually in withdrawal, but the the advice is usually that a person who's taking buprenorphine for chronic pain would t- would divide the dose three or four times a day. Yes, I've seen that done in the hospital, yeah. uh, especially if patients have pain and we're initiating them. We, we space it out like that just because it helps with both conditions, basically. Do you okay. see even more of the kind of patient satisfaction because of the lack of wear off with injectable? Or is it just not? You have it. We don't even you have, really it? have it okay. very much on the East Coast. Do you, have, you have it at UCSF, right? I do not have it covered consistently for my patients. Okay. I have patients mainly on the sublingual uh, formulation. And I should also, the the injectable is actually a lower dose. I believe probufene is eight milligrams. And so I, I most of my patients are really um, opioid experienced. And so uh, they have needed higher daily dosages. So. Okay. Uh, we, we could keep you here for three hours. <laughs> this was an excellent rabbit hole. Yeah. I'm actually really happy we went here. Yes. Uh, I think... Um, do you, by the way, do either of you have your ex license? Yes. 100%. Awesome. Yes. Can I, we don't, we don't have to record this, but like it's, I'm so glad you brought up so many great points. Well, actually, we can record this. I don't care. Yeah, please, Paul. But, um, the <laughs> the way of doling out the medication as a red flag, I love that so much. It's not something that ever occurred to me. And so I started, I realized I was maybe enabling, I, but as, you know, if I don't, I have to keep it. Otherwise, he'll just take them all. And they're like, wait, that doesn't sound right. And then sort of further investigating, does this help with your pain? Not really, but if I don't take it, I get really irritated, and I just don't feel good, and I get kind of sick to my stomach. I'm like, wait, what am I treating here? And then I then I realized that actually one of my first, I think actually my first um, suboxone prescription was specifically for someone I was just trying to get off of chronic oxycodones as opposed to sort of the, the more classic story. Um, and the first time the patient came in, sorry for the long story, Wado. He's actually Spanish-speaking preferred, and I don't speak Spanish at all. And so I've never actually talked to him directly. His wife does the translation. And the first visit after I initiated suboxone, I came in, and I'm like, how do we do in English? I hate it. I was like, oh, and he's like, I'm just kidding. And that was the first two English. <laughs> like he was so happy to have his life back. He could play with his kids. He wasn't waiting for the next pill. Um, it was just, it was life altering for him. So yeah. anyway, I, it, my, my experience now that I can prescribe bup in the hospital, it just like changed the whole paradigm between the patients. Like when I just talk to them, op- whether it's about any substances, really, I feel like now it's just like more, when I was training, it was just like us against them. They're misusing substances and that they're having bad behavior. And now it's just like, tell me about this. Like if, if I treat you with the acute pain meds and you have, I know you have a history of problems with this, do you feel okay? Or is this going to trigger you? Um, and I think it's just, it's so great to, to be able to have like open conversations. Yeah. Uh, one of the last things I wanted to ask you, I know you, you talked about this in your up pain update. Uh, since we kind of mostly talked about opioids, and I know polypharmacy is is most overdoses involve polypharmacy. Can you talk about gabapentin and maybe you can both weigh in on that a little bit? I don't know if, if one of you is. It was a Gomez study in which they found increased rates of unintentional overdose in patients who were taking uh, gabapentin in addition to mm-hmm. opioids. Um, and it it wasn't a perfect study, which I think is... Like if you look at some of the details, there were the two groups weren't completely similar in that the group who were also on um, gabapentin also were on higher dose opioids and benzos, right? Like there were more benzos in that in that group. So it's it's not a perfect study. We know from we know from sort of extrapolating from sort of illicit opioid overdoses that gabapentin well we don't know but we there's some evidence that it increases the risk of overdose um so it's um it's 
it's gabapentin is is very tricky because it used to be that it was so um, kind of touted as a means of sparing the opioid dose and using sort of rational polypharmacy. Um, and now it's being called a little bit more into question. I think um, I, I think there are a lot of people, like if I think about the 75-year-old woman, um, let's say that this, the second 75-year-old woman who's already on a bunch of pills, it would not be uncommon for that list to include, you know, high-dose opioids and high-dose gabapentin and high-dose deloxetine and a tricyclic. Yep. Yep. And we have to think back to like the beers criteria yeah. and the fact that she's geriatric. And, and, and so in efforts to sort of use non- opioid sparing techniques and like approach it from a perhaps a behavioral health thinking about her depression and everything um sometimes i think we we might be doing more harm than good which i think is more the big picture of of what we can take from that gabapentin study it's i do worry i feel like gabapentin is treated sometimes like prayer where it's it may not it may not help but it's probably not going to hurt which i don't think is the case right and then people are on it for years and really doesn't help and, and those people should be tapered off um yeah You know, they have looked at people that are entering drug treatment programs and taken surveys of them and asked them, have you ever abused gabapentin? And 15 to 20 percent of people say yes. And so that was sort of uh, that sort of adds to the data. We know it's uh, it has sedative properties. And uh, the thing that was interesting about this nested case control study is um, they again, they showed sort of this increased risk of uh, risk of death with gabapentin with opioids. Uh, they did attempt to adjust for people being on benzos, but I, the increased risk was still about um, uh, about 50% sort of increased risk of unintentional overdose from, and there was a dose response effect with the gabapentin at higher doses. And the um, uh, they introduced like the mechanism, which is thought to be that you know, opioids decrease your gastrointestinal motility and gabapentin is absorbed in the small intestine. So as you slow down GI transit, you increase, you increase your absorption of gabapentin and have potentially like that's a source of increased toxicity. In addition to the fact that you're taking two sedatives between the opioids and the gabapentin. Uh, And so, um, uh, so I think that the it's given it's given me caution in um, use of gabapentin. Another big study that did come out: no evidence for gabapentin in low back pain. Uh, yeah. So uh, making sure people are aware of that, and um, and yeah, I think I think we have to be careful of just the all of the overprescribing um, uh, for a person. And you know, a lot of this is just about can we sit down and just engage and understand our patients are suffering and that we might not have perfect solutions to the problem. The last question is, uh, Soraya, do you have anything you'd like to plug or any asks that you'd like to, to send to our audience here? Some of us joke that like you shouldn't be allowed to prescribe opioids unless you also have an X license to prescribe buprenorphine because there's a complication that can happen from starting the meds, which is developing an opioid use disorder. And we should also be able to manage that if that happens to our patients um, from the opioids we give them. And so my plug is um, for everyone to get their um, waiver or to advocate for elimination of the waiver, which has actually now been introduced to the legislature. So um, those are my plugs, and you can go to pcss.org, and you can do the eight hours for free online, uh, which sounds really painful, but... um, (laughs) It's better than paying $200. (laughs) Um, Well, I I mean, she stole my thunder. I I, I mean, Sarai's heard me going around like 
jabbing people I barely know saying, hey, do you have your waiver? <laughs> so it's really my my shared yeah. soapbox. Um, I guess I would say since this is an internal medicine podcast that um, sometimes in my experience with sort of cultural change, um, the only way that things change is there has to be a mandate and some board exam questions. So I, um, the way that the ACGME, um, the, what are they called? The, the guidelines, the, anyway, the, there are there are specific um, learning criteria for yeah. for that do not include um, you know mandatory training in substance use disorders and buprenorphine waivers. And I think as as great it would be if everyone sort of just woke up and understood that they should you know um, have this really important skill. Um, I think. Um, at the same time, from a policy level, we should be arguing to have it part of the curriculum and also on the boards. All right. And we'll end it there. Thank you. Thank you so much. Amazing. Super fun. Thank you so much. This has been another episode of The Curbsiders, bringing you a little knowledge food for your brain hole. Yummy. Well, <laughs> strong work. Get your show notes at thecurbsiders.com forward slash podcast and sign up for our mailing list at thecurbsiders.com forward slash knowledge food to get our weekly show notes in your inbox. We're committed to providing you with high value practice changing knowledge. And to do that, we need your feedback. So please subscribe, rate and review the show on iTunes or contact us at thecurbsiders at gmail.com. A special thanks to our social media team, Hannah R. Abrams on Twitter, Beth Garbs Garbatelli on Instagram, and Chris the Chewman Chew on Facebook. Until next time, I've been Nora Toronto. I think you forgot to thank yourself for writing and producing this episode. Oh. So I'll thank you. And I've been Dr. Matthew Frank Watto. <laughs> and I remain Dr. Paul Nelson Williams. Thank you and goodbye. This has been another episode of The Curbsiders, bringing you a little knowledge food for your brain hole. Yummy. Oh. This is Nora's chance to shine, and you stole it. Oh, no. Damn it. (laughs) You want to take it again? Yeah. (laughs) Let's take it again. Yeah. This is going to be the outtake for sure. Um, (laughs)